who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair and yep. his ice-cold demeanor and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. My name is Sergeant Andrew Scott. Come on, guys, don't do this. If I don't get breakfast, I get real grumpy. I don't think you like me grumpy. And you go in pieces, asshole. Let's kick some ass. Hello, and welcome back to I must break this podcast, the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. I'm your host, Sean, and today we're chatting two films, both released in the last year. One, a big-budget Christmas release, and the other, a small, independent Thanksgiving release. Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, and Showdown at the Grand. Seeing as how both films were released at the tail end of 2023, and both films have Dolph taking on supporting roles where he's wearing crazy wigs in each, uh, I, I thought we'd knock them both out here in this one episode. Lending me the help in discussing both films are show regulars and my good friends Chris Prentice and David Rosen. So, first up in this conversation will be our coverage of Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. In this sequel to the 2018 smash hit, Jason Momoa returns to the role as the underwater DC Comics superhero. This time, Aquaman must team up with his half-brother Orm to protect the throne of Atlantis after his nemesis Black Manta plans a personal attack of revenge. Lundgren also returns as King Nearest, a proud Atlantean king who assists Aquaman in retaining his throne. Kill Aquaman, murder his family, and burn his kingdom to ash. I will avenge my father, even if I have to make a deal with the devil. I'm coming for you. We'll pick a fight. Fine. Flex your muscles. He must be stopped. If you lead, the Seven Kingdoms will follow. Sometimes not giving up is the most heroic thing you can do. Returning to the show to discuss this one is David Rosen from the Piecing It Together podcast. Now, this conversation was actually on his podcast, and I figured I'd include it here as well. So here is our coverage of Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Enjoy. All right, we've got Sean Malloy back with us. We are going to talk about Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, a movie that I have been waiting for for a long time as one of the people out there who appreciates the ridiculousness of what James Wan brought to this series. But Sean, first of all, 
Uh, it's early morning that we're recording this. Do you have yourself a nice little cockroach sandwich to uh, to enjoy to wake up today? I just have a caffeinated beverage, unfortunately, but um, but yeah, I, I I think that should uh, that should do the job. But yeah, cockroach sandwich, man, wasn't that hilarious? You know, right. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that has to have been done like a thousand times before. But I was just like, Patrick Wilson sells it, yeah. so you know, yeah, it's all good. Were you a big fan of the first Aquaman? Mm. I mean, obviously your boy Dolph Lundgren was in it, so there's, you know, that connection and everything, but did, were you on the wavelength of the ridiculousness that this, you know, this particular kind of superhero movie was trying to bring? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you go back 2018, Christmas of 2018, I was so stoked and psyched for the first Aquaman, and I think there are a number of reasons. Um, first of all, I mean, the, the character of Aquaman, I mean, if you go back, and I, I remember reading comics back in the comic collecting heyday when I was a little kid, back in the early 90s, and Aquaman was always kind of that that dopey, kind of dorky superhero that always kind of got, always, always kind of got laughed at. I mean, if you look at clips on Family Guy and on Big Bang Theory, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? He's not the, the flashiest superhero. So what was really cool about the one, about the first movie that came out in 2018 was how that really made the character seem cool. You know what I mean? I mean, casting Jason Momoa really kind of added that rock and roll element to him. Mm-hmm. The fact that uh, that Dolph Lundgren was going to be playing King Nereus in in the first one, even though it was a, a small supporting role, it was coming off the heels of Creed two. That was pretty exciting. And at the time, it was really kind of cool because it's not like it's not like we were in a uh, a low abundance of superhero movies in 2018 by any means. Sure. Okay. But what was cool about the first one is that it seemed to add something new it seemed to add something uh a new and and fresh to the um overcrowded superhero genre and so yeah when it came out i was stoked um i loved the first one okay um even though it's cgi city <laughs> you know what i mean I, I don't think i don't think a single set was built for any of these movies it was oh, yeah. all done in front of a green screen but i was i was really uh, stoked for the first one and it delivered um with the second one, I mean, I think there's a lot of factors that kind of come into play for why um, reception to the new one has been a little lukewarm. I think the fact that they waited five years to release the new one, I think, was a little bit too long of, of a gap. But then again, we had a, a pesky pandemic and writer strike and everything like that that kind of delayed the, the release of this mm-hmm. one. But it certainly didn't help. But yeah, long roundabout answer. Loved the first one. Um, and so... I, I was pretty welcoming to a uh, to a sequel. I mean, it made sense. Well, awesome. I, I'm glad that you uh, are coming to this from the same kind of uh, you know headspace that I was because yeah, I just had so much fun with the first one. It, it's it's so ridiculous, but like it's fun. It's mm-hmm. like the, a lot of these superhero movies are either too goofy or they're too grim dark and. I felt like, you know, James Wan and Jason Momoa and Patrick Wilson, like, I felt like these guys, like, got a specific tone, and that's what I loved so much about it. It's such a, a work of vision of, like, this is what we want to do, and, you know, it might be out there, it might be crazy, but it's a very specific thing, and like you said, there's not... There wasn't really anything else quite like it, and there still really isn't. I, I don't feel like anybody kind of has the balls to like go this crazy with their superhero movies. So uh, yeah, I, I'm really happy that the second one kind of delivered. Uh, not as good as the first, but it, it it's you know like you said, it's had a bit of a messy uh, you know path to release, and so at least we got something, and it still actually delivered on what 
you know, those of us who liked the first one liked about it. But, you know, with that said, let's start getting into some puzzle pieces and we'll talk more about what works and what doesn't work along the way. What do you have for your first piece? Well, you know, and I, I, I hate bringing up a political commentator for one of these, but I mean, <laughs> there, there's really no denying uh, that what he stated a few years ago is true. But um, on on Bill Maher's um, politically incorrect uh, uh, talk show that that uh, that he does. He got a lot of um, a lot of heat because he threw shade at uh, people who were um, expressing uh, emotion at uh, intense emotion, I used to say, at the passing of Stan Lee. And so, um, and, and and I'm not I'm not condoning what he said or anything like that. But I mean, he did he did bring up a really good point about these superhero movies. Is he said in so many terms. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna mince his words, but he he basically said all these movies are is about um the good guys and the bad guys after a magic glowy thing, and if you really if you really break down all of these movies that that's basically what what's going on. Okay, if you looked at Black Adam, they're after a a glowy like um what was it a crown or something like that? Yeah, I, think I mean so, and yeah, all, all those like Marvel that. movies there's oh they're always after you know something that is glowy, and then if you look at this one. It's following that same mo, that same thing. They're they're after this um this this glowing green evil trident, okay. And so and it's one of those things where, I mean, look, Bill Maher is a hundred percent in the right by making that statement. And so anybody who is um tired of these particular films, it's not Aquaman's fault, okay. It's the fact that we've been getting so many, we've been getting too many superhero movies within the past couple years. That they're all following the same blueprint. They're all following the same thing, and I mean, I mean, look, look. If you look at that Guardians three movie, that one kind of came and went. It got some fanfare, but it seemed like some people liked it. But I mean, that one's been forgotten. Ant Man, Quantum Mania, that one kind of came and went. You know what I mean? Um. Then there was uh, if you look at DC, there was the the, the Shazam two. You know what I mean? These movies are coming and going so quickly. Because there's not mm-hmm. enough time for audiences to kind of take a breath and kind of take in what it was that we saw. And I mean, I mean, that's with anything. When you put out content after content, especially if it's the same, then again, you're going to, I've been saying this on my show and I've said it before, but you're going to saturate the market. You're going to um, t- tune fans off of the product that they, that they love and that they want, or at least that, that, that they thought they wanted. And so then that's why we're currently we're in the current state that we are. I think we're kind of starting to see the bubble burst on these superhero movies and we may not be seeing as as many anymore, which kills me as as a fan of this genre as that I once was, but even I just have gotten just so burnt out of it. Yeah, yeah, it, this year and and we're going to continue to see all these like think pieces on like what exactly is going wrong because obviously these movies have been, you know, the main box office draw of the last like 15 years and this year it's just not really working out too well. Um and I I think you're right. I think I think it's, you know, it's oversaturation is, you know, problem number 1 and I guess we could call this puzzle piece all those superhero movies with the glowy things, um, mm-hmm. you know, because there's certainly a lot of them. You can make a, a, a big ass list of them. So, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely something that's just been done to death. And yeah, we're we're seeing this year is going to be either course correction time, uh, you know, going into 2024, or they're going to drive it into the ground. And I do not know exactly what to expect, but. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if if these giant companies who have controlled the entire business for so long can kind of 
get it back or if it's going to continue going downhill. Speaking of, uh, you know, glowy things to collect, I mean, I do have some superhero movies on my list, although I try to, uh, you know, not have too many. But I think the the most obvious, you know, as far as puzzle pieces go, like the most obvious thing to bring up is the Loki-Thor relationship. Um, you know, Loki being the villain who ends up becoming a hero who is also still kind of bad and kind of goes back and forth. Uh, you know, that's exactly the relationship that they're, they're kind of bringing about with the sequel here with, uh, Orm Ocean Master, Patrick Wilson's character, who is kind of the best part of these movies, I think. Like, he was so funny in the first one, just so over the top. And here he actually, like, gets all of the funniest moments. He's the most fun character. He gets the redemption arc. And, uh, you know, kind of basing the movie around the villain, you know, definitely brings to mind Loki. And uh, Aquaman even calls him Loki at one point. Like, so it's, like, super on the nose that that's where they're going with it. Well, that that's a great segue into into my uh, next puzzle piece. But, yeah, I mean, th- this this particular film, I mean, and I'm, I'm not going to hate on it, you know what I mean? Because, I mean, I feel like it's pretty much delivering exactly what the first one did, you know what I mean? Um, but I think this one really did have an uphill battle mm-hmm. um, throughout its... Uh, Maybe not so much through its production, but through its release. And I think a lot of that falls, I'm going to say it, sorry, but a lot of that falls on James Gunn's shoulders. Okay, James Gunn, sure. basically, not even not even in so many words, he, he announced that he was going to be retconning the entire um, DC extended universe, uh, cinematic universe that we see, okay? Um, and he did this when we still had so many films that were... <laughs> <laughs> that were awaiting release. So we still had uh, Black Adam that was going to be coming out. We still had uh, the Blue Beetle. We still had that Shazam, uh, Fury of the Gods. And then we had this uh, this this last Aquaman movie. And so it's just, it's, it's so sad. I mean, David, c- call me crazy. Call me crazy. But don't most businesses at least let their employee finish out the day or at least finish out the week before they get fired. You know what I mean? Like, I I would think that's what most businesses do. But for him to make that announcement when he still had, you know, four big, huge budget uh, uh, movies that (laughs) that were awaiting release... And then he makes that announcement. It makes all of these uh, films, including this one, just seem completely inert and completely useless. You know? Absolutely. It's it's such a bizarre choice. And... uh... I, I think we're going to be, like, studying this, like, you know, as far as, like, looking back at the 2020s and movies, like, how they could have messed this up so poorly. Yeah, yeah, especially when you hear that they they basically, that they shit-canned the, uh, the, the Batgirl movie, and it makes you wonder, like, how, yeah. how bad was it really? And I think, I, I'd like to think, I wonder if Warner is kind of seeing that that might have in the long run been a really bad move because when you announce something like that it it doesn't really put um you in the best most favorable light with your fans and also I mean the villain was going to be played by um the guy who won the academy award for best actor so they could have ridden on that you know what I mean to to kind of give the mm-hmm. film some uh, I'm not saying that you know the world is is a um is a sad place because we didn't have a Batgirl movie. But on the other hand, it's kind of like they could have dumped that on a streamer and they would have been, they would have been fine. You know, 
Sure, sure, absolutely. It's just, it's just you know, a, a perfect like microcosm of everything wrong with with the business right now, and uh, especially the superhero business. But yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I, you know, as long as we're talking superheroes, I'm going to get my other superhero puzzle piece out of the way here, which is more Marvel, really. Mm-hmm. It's Black Panther and Iron Man. I mean, first of all, we've got so much Black Panther here with a you know a secret you know, uh, you know, country that's super, you know, high tech, uh, that doesn't want the rest of the world to know about them. And then ending on exactly the ending of the first Iron Man movie with Aquaman announcing himself to the world and announcing that I am Aquaman, which is, I, I'm not the first person to bring this up, but the most ridiculous thing to end the entire DCEU in the exact same place where the MCU started is just... I mean, it goes right back to you bringing up the James Gunn announcement. Like, what are they doing? Exactly, exactly. I mean, look, the the DCEU has had a lot of problems since its inception. And I think a lot of that is because Marvel kind of got to the gate first. And so everything that DC was doing was being looked at as copy and Marvel, um, which I didn't really see that as fair, to be perfectly honest. I was always kind of rooting for uh, for DC to to have the same success as Marvel. But yeah, you got you, you got to wonder when they're hitting the exact beat and, you know, nodding to <laughs> to the, the, the film that uh, started the entire thing. That was one of my notes as well. So I could just take that right off uh right off my page as well but yeah you're gonna end the movie with the exact same joke yeah that they did in 2008's iron man i mean you said it perfectly you wonder like what are they doing it's so crazy yeah. <laughs> oh man they just have no clue what they're doing that's really what it comes down to but uh yeah so i i know you had iron man uh on your list so i might as well go to another one too uh i'm going with geostorm because uh i i think that this you know definitely fits in as much with superhero movies as it does with disaster movies and i actually really liked that they kind of went with the villain's whole thing here black manta uh, that a side effect of his powers was going to be accelerating global warming. I think that was a kind of a clever, you know, supervillain, uh, you know, inadvertent, you know, disaster movie kind of thing to happen. And uh, so, you know, I just, I, I, there might be a better disaster movie that could be put in this place, but I thought of Geostorm when it comes to uh, the acceleration of, you know, all of the uh, natural disasters and, and global warming and the whole message of what we're doing to the planet. No, it's a, it's a good uh, way of looking at it. Yeah, I didn't even, uh, I didn't even think of that one. I mean, the, my big issue with, again, not just this movie, but all of these um not just, well, I guess you could say not just superhero movies, but movies in general nowadays. I mean, this kind of goes back to our Expendables 4 discussion that we had a few months back. But the lack of stakes in any of these movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's really almost insulting nowadays, but we we get no stakes. All of these movies are so afraid to kill off a character and provide any kind of real threat to the uh to the proceedings yeah you know what i mean and uh, now i'm not coming on here and i'm not saying that oh yeah characters need to die not necessarily but i mean if you really want to um provide some real um emotional gravity to your film and you really want to pose like a real threat and you really want to have that moment where your hero is terrified okay at, at what is going to happen then yeah you you need some real stakes in this film and i mean and i will say this film is cribbing from a uh, a very popular um 
uh, Aquaman storyline that came out, I want to say in the early mid seventies or so called death of a prince. Okay. And I'm, I'm I'm not expecting you to be familiar with it or anything, but I mean, in that particular storyline, black Manta uh, kidnaps um, Arthur Curry's uh, son. He was a little bit older at that time. So I think in that storyline, Arthur Curry, Arthur Jr. was about a toddler, but he was real little, but black Manta kidnaps the son and um, puts him in like this, uh, in this in this imprisoned ball that is filled with air and he basically he he kills uh, uh hmm. aquaman's son and so what that does is that sets aquaman on the ultimate path of vengeance to uh to you know uh, avenge his kid and everything i mean that's that's a ballsy move i mean let's be honest that's a ballsy move for not just a movie but for a comic book to kill off a child and i wasn't expecting when i heard that they were going to be bringing back black mantha and i saw that he was going to have a son in this one i knew that they were going to touch upon that particular storyline a little bit but i also knew okay they're not going to kill his kid okay right <laughs> they're, they're just not going to do that however what this film does is they do not kidnap his child until the final third minutes of the movie i think this film would have had so many more stakes if they would have led with that and had black man to kidnap his child early in the movie then we could have really had you know aquaman really scared and uh and trying to get his son back what this film also does is there's the scene where black manta torches arthur curry's uh, dad's home okay and you think for a very brief minute that he that his dad okay tamara morrison's character dies but even he survives they they yeah. rescue him with some atlantean technology and it's like man they're not even going to kill off that character Okay, they're not they can't even kill off Mara. Wouldn't that have been something kind of cool too? Sorry, I'm kind of going yeah. off I'm going off on this huge tangent. But I mean, Amber Heard had a ton of issues this year, and there were all these rumors that they were gonna write her out of the movie and everything. What if they kidnapped her? What if they killed off that character? You know what I mean? But they don't want to take any chances in any of these movies and provide any kind of stakes. All characters are gonna survive at the end. And I'm sorry, but when you're doing that, then your villain just is not intimidating in the least right right no absolutely you're so right about that and that is something we've been seeing in a lot of these superhero movies especially once we start getting into the multiverses and all that stuff because then you can just bring anybody back so you just you always know it doesn't really matter anything that's happening in any of these movies but uh i i love that you brought in that death of a prince uh storyline in here as a puzzle piece because uh yeah i certainly wouldn't have known about that since i never really you know read the comics or anything like that but um one thing, though, about kind of the the messiness, I guess, of of this movie and of, you know, where the Black Manta character goes for a while after the first Aquaman, uh, you know, inexplicably made a billion dollars. Uh, it was announced that they were doing an Aquaman 2 and they were doing a spinoff called The Trench that was supposed to focus mm -hmm. specifically on Black Manta and be more of like a horror spinoff. And I have to imagine part of the reason this movie is so messy is they used bits and pieces of both scripts and just kind of threw them together. And that that's, I mean, all this stuff with Black Manta going underground, or not underground, but like deep underwater and finding this other city and, and there's ghosts and, you know, all this stuff like that has to be from the trench, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, that's the other problem, too, with uh, with <laughs> all these movies nowadays is they make these huge announcements at like 20 different projects and they just throw them all up against the wall seeing which one is going to stick and it's kind of like okay that's cool if you want to do that to kind of wet fans excitement but i think fans now at this point we're on to the fact that okay of all those projects 
we'll be lucky if maybe two happen. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So, but yeah, that was just my huge frustration, man, is it was like, you're not even going to kill off the Tamara Morrison character. They're going to toy with our emotions and we're going to think, oh, wow, like, okay, Arthur Curry, he he has it bad now for, for Black Manta because not only did he torch um, his house and steal his kid, but he also left his dad to die. But then mm-hmm. they're going to pull out this last minute, you know, space MacGuffin where we see Tamara Morrison wearing this uh, this Atlantean, you know, health device. And then at the end of the movie, spoiler, at the end of the movie, he's okay. Nicole Kidman is okay. The baby is fine. Um, Amber Heard is fine. And it's like, man, they don't want to do, they don't want to do anything with, <laughs> with, with providing any kind of, um, any kind of threat to these particular films at all. I mean, if you look at the, the Creed movies, Okay, Rocky Four had zero problem killing off Apollo Creed, and all of the movies have have um, been been echoing upon that. You don't mm. see them bringing back the the Creed character. Now, granted, those are steeped in a little bit more realism. I understand, but you know, you know what I mean. But having those Fast and the Furious brought back, having those movies brought back characters that were killed, and having those movies suddenly made villains good guys all of a sudden. I mean, it's like, what are we? What are, again? What are they doing? Yep. Well, you know, and we brought up Fast and the Furious on the first Aquaman, but that that applies here as well. It applies to every superhero movie. I mean, the Fast and Furious movies are basically superhero movies. And so, yeah, they just bring everybody back. There's no stakes. Like, it's just, it's what what will look cool in the moment, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I'm going to go with King Kong and the Skull Island. Um, they, We have, like, a little... Uh, fetch quest-esque uh you know situation here where uh aquaman and and orm have to go to this island uh, this like volcano island and uh everything there is big all of the bugs are big there's a dead rat that the bugs are eating that's really big giant butterflies giant this giant that totally you know a skull island kind of thing a fun sequence although incredibly rushed through like the whole thing they're, they're in and out of this entire island in maybe like 10 minutes of the entire two-hour movie i thought of the uh pitch meetings you know how are they gonna get out of this one super easy barely an inconvenience um but it, it was fun while it was going on and like a clear inspiration from the whole skull island thing and uh it made made for some you know they probably uh spent a few bucks on those effects because uh, the bugs were good and creepy looking i think well, that's a good segue for for my next puzzle piece because I thought it was very interesting that for the sequel they decided to make it a buddy movie. Okay. Uh-huh. Yes. Especially, okay, it's kind of a bold move too. Especially to make it a buddy movie with the villain in the last movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, and and again, going back to what I said about the lack of stakes, it's kind of like, okay, well, suddenly in this new movie. You're going to have him teaming up with the big bad guy in the last movie. Well, suddenly that makes the last movie seem almost um, almost useless in, in some in some kind of ways. <laughs> when suddenly the hero is is teaming up with the uh, with with who was ostensibly the villain in the last movie. And, it, and, and it's clear what they're doing here. OK, that kind of leads me to my puzzle piece is it just kind of reminded me of it's going with a, a buddy cop dynamic like what we saw in 48 hours. Okay, or or pretty much any of those any of those buddy movies. What's really interesting, though, again, a, a different, uh, uh, an interesting creative choice, I guess you can say, is if you look at all of those buddy movies, whether it's Forty Eight Hours, whether it's Midnight Run, you name it. But you always have the straight laced guy, and then you always kind of have the wacky sidekick. 
Okay. Yes. And I mean, with with Midnight Run, you had um, the wacky sidekick was Charles Grodin, but he was also the criminal. And then uh, with Forty Eight Hours, you know, the wacky sidekick was Eddie Murphy, who again is also a criminal. And that's that's basically what they're doing here is they're teaming up with the criminal or the villain. They're having Aquaman team up with the villain from the last movie. Only it kind of flips it a bit to where Orm, okay, that's the Patrick Wilson character. He's the straight laced one, and Aquaman is so much more goofy in this movie than he was in the last movie. And so it's like, wow, our main character, okay, in this team up is going to be the goofy one. And I don't want to go as far as saying that he was inept, but it seemed like he was cracking so many more jokes. And I didn't think a lot of them really landed like they did in the first one. And I don't know that that's, that's basically what, what the, what the whole team up dynamic reminded me of here. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I thought the same thing that it's so interesting that they made the main character the goofy one. Like he, mm-hmm. he's like kind of the comic sidekick, and uh, it's a really, I mean, James Wan is a really interesting filmmaker. I mean, you know, I love *Malignant*. I'm still wearing my *Malignant* shirt actually, but uh, I, <laughs> I love, uh, I love James Wan, and and he, he has so much fun with these like genre tropes and stuff like that and just really kind of trying to mess with them and uh yeah i think that that's such a knowing thing like i think that he really wanted to do that with the relationship between these two guys and uh i I think that's great it's one of my favorite things about the movie so i i'm sure some people saw that and were like that's stupid how can you make your main character goofy but like i i thought that was a really good thing about this and one of my favorite parts of it I will go with an obvious one I'll throw in here, and that is the Pirates of the Caribbean series. I would especially go with the last one, Dead Men Tell No Tales, where at that point, you know, it's throw as much CGI at the screen as you possibly can. There's just so much stuff happening in every single sequence. And, uh, I, you know, I think that one involved going under the sea with ghosts and, you know, like a hidden king and all this kind of stuff too and mind control and i think a lot of those same kind of uh, themes were being explored there i know most people did not like that one uh but i i thought javier bardem was fun in it and it's you know these these two series they kind of go hand in hand with everything going on on the water and all the like ghost pirates and shit like that yeah, I mean, and this is a point of contrition here. I'll, I'll just admit, I have not seen any of those pirate movies. How many have they made now? Is it four or five? Is it I five I think now? that was the fifth one, I want to okay. say, but who could keep track, honestly? Yeah, I'm, well, again, you want to talk about market saturation. But yeah, I, I have only seen the up to the third one, and to be honest... I don't remember anything about this movie. <laughs> yeah. So. The first one really holds up. I just watched it like a couple of years ago. It is really fun. But yeah, the sequels, no one needs to rewatch those. Well, you meant, you mentioned something really interesting real quick, if I may. I mean, this isn't one of my puzzle pieces, one of my notes. But I mean, you mentioned James Wan. And I completely agree with you. I think James Wan is a, uh, is a fantastic director. Um, and, and you watch this film and you can see that he's really been hampered by studio notes from warner brothers okay because and again i'm not saying if you go with that death of a prince storyline okay that this film is kind of cribbing from obviously i realize that this is not going to go uh super dark okay but if you look at the dc cinematic universe okay when they did that first um when they did that man of steel movie and that batman versus superman movie i know that those movies get a ton of uh criticism and heat from fans but if you look at them i mean (laughs) There's no denying, David, and I think you'd agree with this, 
Those films all look and feel different than the average superhero movie because they're a little bit dark. You know what I mean? They're they're a little bit dark. And if you look at James Wan, I mean, he did a movie that's really become forgotten that I think is fantastic called Death Sentence. Did you ever see Death Sentence? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin Bacon? Yeah. Yep. I mean, that movie is awesome. So, I mean, this is a director who, I mean, he, he can go dark a little bit. And so, and again, it's, it's a tricky thing, okay? Obviously... You take a property like Aquaman, it's, I'm not expecting them to, you know, kill a child and, and go, you know, <laughs> super duper dark. But he could have done something that was not um, hampered by the restrictions set forth by Warner Brothers and uh, and DC. And my, which kind of leads to the next puzzle piece that, that I had, my last one, actually. But it, it's very clear that that there were um, companies bigger than James Wan that were whispering in here in his ear telling him you need to do this you need to hit this beat you know what i mean and so it doesn't feel as much like a like a james wan movie you know what i mean sure but i mean that that's a, that's a good segue because i mean that that leads me to my my last puzzle piece um which is uh 19 oh i'm trying to do the math on this one real quick yeah 1997's uh batman and robin i'm sure i'm sure you're familiar with this one you've seen it of course yeah <laughs> and the only reason I bring that up is because Joel Schumacher went on record for that one, apologizing for that one. But if you look at that movie, um, the characters in the, in that particular film, they suddenly switch costumes in the final act. And they're suddenly driving these vehicles in the final act that really, in the grand scheme of things, don't make a heck of a lot of sense. And Joel Schumacher went on record. The reason for this is because Warner Brothers was pressuring him and they were saying we need to sell toys okay we need to sell toys yeah. and so um you need to uh include this costume here at this part in the movie because we have a, a the toy line is going to come out we're going to be doing that and i mean you see that again going along with what i said with james wan um having pressure from the studio you look at that and why does Jason Momoa put on a new costume in the second act of the movie when it really doesn't make any sense? Okay, I remember one of the, you know, when this film was in production, they released the photo of uh, of Jason Momoa in that sleek black bodysuit saying this was his new costume. Okay, and in the context of the movie, it's to provide him camouflage or whatever when he's going in and trying to break uh, Patrick Wilson out of uh, out of the prison that he was in, but you know that the only reason that that was included was so that they could sell a a new toy for Aquaman. Sure. You know what I mean? And it doesn't, in the end, in the grand scheme of things, it, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It's not needed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Absolutely, absolutely not needed. But uh, they got they got to sell those toys. I I think it's funny that when the first Aquaman came out, I'm pretty sure. Batman and Robin was brought up as a puzzle piece for the reason of like the goofier side of what superhero movies can be like the, the just real, just out there, silly Saturday morning cartoons, like all that kind of stuff. And now all these years later, we're bringing up Batman and Robin for the studio intervention and like, you know, the real cynical, like, you know, the studios giving you a leash, but not too long of a leash. Uh, because you know, when it comes all down to it, like it's still the business and they've got to, uh, they've got to sell their toys. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting that, you know, for, you know, like the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, obviously they were like, 
yeah, we'll stay. We'll we'll keep our hands off this, Christopher Nolan. You know what you're doing, and we'll leave you be. Okay, you know. But for these ones, they're they have their uh, their fingers in in the in the pot on this one so much that where, like I said, it doesn't feel as much like a James Wan movie. He feels so much more like a gun for hire in this yeah. one than uh, than even he was for the first one to an extent. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Well, I I'll do uh, one more piece. I, I got a a couple other things, but I I think the the one that I want to use though will be the Green Knight. David Lowry's The Green Knight, uh, which back when that came out in 2021, I talked about how much it felt like a like a more beautiful cinematic version of what a video game movie is, and I feel like it's certain aspects of Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom are reaching for that, pulled back by certain things that we've been talking about here, uh, but certainly using the video game trajectory of a story, you know, you got to go talk to the king, you got to find the guy who knows where the secret sword is and the secret this and that, and like, where are we going to find the villain? Oh, he's up at the the volcano level, like, you know, we, we got to get into there and like, it, it's all of that kind of video game style storytelling, um, fetch quests, you know, the whole thing, uh, but put into, you know, a big giant adventure movie. And I think the green Knight did it like really well. I think this movie, you know, does it to its own kind of restricted universe studio, you know, hampered degree and they can't really do everything that they wanted to do. And maybe there's bits and pieces of different scripts happening, but it's, I think going for that kind of thing, it's very much a video game movie without it being based on a video game. Well, I mean, that's <laughs> David. It's interesting how, how our notes are, are paralleling and lining one another, but that, that leads me to one of, one of my other pieces is the fact, um, I mean, this kind of reminded me to an extent of, uh, I mean, the, the film has become so dated nowadays, but they did that Final Fantasy Spirits Within movie that oh, came yeah. out about 20 some odd years ago or whatever. I mean, and that was one of the first real, what was it called? Uh, photorealistic movies. Okay. Like they the CG out. animation. Yeah, yeah. And it does get to a certain point. I mean, look, they are doing things with CGI nowadays that were, that we couldn't even really dream of, you know, 20 years ago. I mean, but it's it's interesting with this film. Like I said earlier, it's very clear. I don't think they really had to build a single set for this movie. About 85 to 90% of it is all filmed in front of a green screen. And so mm -hmm. it does beg the question at a certain point, like, why do we even have actors at a certain point? I mean, they, they could have, I mean, <laughs> I hate to say it, but they could have made this movie 100% CGI animated. And I think it probably still would have played just fine. You know what right. I mean? But you, you get to a certain point where, like, when you see Aquaman flipping and swimming around and everything like that, I mean, or when he's on the seahorse and everything, it looks really cool, but you know that's also not Jason Momoa. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so it's like, like at a certain point, like, why don't we just make this a, a full-on CGI animated movie at this point? And I almost kind of wonder if that's the point that we're, that we're going to be getting to. I mean, Rob, Robert Zemeckis has made those... Um, those CGI animated movies. He did a Christmas Carol. He did Polar Express. Um, yeah. I think he did the Beowulf one. You know what I mean? And so, right. and when those came out, they looked a little odd, but things have gotten better since then. I, yeah. I do wonder at a certain point, if we may see more things, more along that nature than, you know, than I mean, why, why even need actors at a certain point, you know? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, also we could throw Avatar in the list too. I mean, it was a puzzle piece yeah. when we did the first Aquaman. Um, but you know, it, it's speaking of making things photorealistic with, with computer generated imagery and, uh, you know, it definitely fits here as well. Also something that we haven't mentioned, uh, or calcum, which is, you know, essentially unobtainium. So, oh, yes. uh, you can definitely, uh, include Avatar on the list there. Yeah. I do have to br- bring it back slightly, though. I mean, I, I, I'd like to ask you real quick, what did you think of um, of Dolph Lundgren's inclusion in this film? I, I personally, I loved him in the first one, but when I heard that they were going to be minimizing Amber Heard's role in this film, it kind of made me wonder, like, oh, man, I like, because if there's not Amber Heard, he plays her father. Like, does that mean less scenes of him? But I was actually pleasantly surprised he was in this film more than I thought he would. Even though most of his scenes are him standing there at uh, council tables, pretty much saying, "Well, Aquaman, if you do this, this may happen. I advise against that." <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. Well, I, you know, I think he made the most of his time in this, and also, you know, like I said, I do think Patrick Wilson is the star of this movie. He's so great, and him and Dolph Lundgren have a rapport in this, you know, where they. You know, he doesn't trust him and everything. And so that makes for a couple of good joke moments. There's the moment where uh, Dolph Lundgren doesn't want to give him a weapon, you know, stuff like that. And so he definitely gets a few moments. But as we've kind of talked about, as much as we did like this movie, you know, the script is kind of just patchwork. Uh, And so I think a lot of what he might have done in a better version of the movie uh, is kind of on the cutting room floor. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good good point. Yeah. Well, anyway, thanks for indulging me and in, in talking about it. Yeah, but I mean, I thought, like I said, I you said it perfectly. I think he does the best with what he's been given. I can only imagine. I mean, you can tell Dolph looks very uncomfortable in that giant suit that he's wearing. Okay, <laughs> especially in that scene where they're on land, because when he's underwater, you see it. And I'm thinking like, okay, maybe they might have CGI'd a lot of that suit on him. But then there's the scene where they're on land. I mean, and that suit looks like it has to weigh like 50 pounds or something. Like I can only imagine how uncomfortable all of them are in these, like um, these massive gladiator outfits that they're wearing. <laughs> yeah. It can't be fun filming this stuff, but yeah. uh, I mean, it looks like Jason Momoa is having fun, but everybody else can't be that fun. But uh, I'll run down the list of puzzle pieces here and then we'll get into some closing thoughts. Uh, you know, we, we of course talked about all superhero movies with a glowy thing to collect, as well as Loki, James Gunn's whole announcement of the DC, EU, Black Panther and Iron Man, Geostorm. Uh, you brought up Aquaman Death of a Prince, which was really interesting to uh, hear about. Uh, then we also got some Fast and Furious in there, Skull Island and King Kong. 48 Hours, Midnight Run, various other buddy comedies, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man Tell No Tales, Batman and Robin, The Green Knight, Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, and Avatar. You know, I I think there's a lot of overlap with the first movie here as far as puzzle pieces are concerned, but, you know, it's it's kind of more of the same. And I again, that's that's what I wanted out of this movie because I didn't want them to go more serious because it's the end of the DCEU. I also didn't want it to get too stupid you know what i mean because it is a very ridiculous uh series these two aquaman movies but um i i think the fact that we got more of the same is a good thing and honestly exactly what i was hoping for well stated well stated i mean yeah i know i know earlier i said like and again i want to stress it's not like i wanted them to take this a little bit too dark you know what i mean but um 
at the same hand, uh, at the, right. on the same side, it, it did get a little a little too silly. And again, I mean, if you're going to make the main hero more of a joke, then I don't know that that's kind of a difficult um, mountain to climb, I, I think, especially for an audience. You know what I mean? Like, why would we want to follow this character if he is so... Um, if he is so silly and buffoonish, but, um, you know, I think Jason Momoa was, was fantastic in the role as much. And again, I mean, I I will say it, the first Aquaman did so much for the DCEU. It's, it's really kind of interesting that the character who was always a bit of a joke in the lineup of Justice League characters was the character that became the, uh, the the triumph for that entire uh yeah for that entire universe unfortunately again this film was really hampered a very strange place uh to to leave this universe but hey that's yeah what happened that's all there is to it but uh yeah i think that does it for aquaman and the lost city sean is there another movie you watched recently you'd like to recommend to our listeners <laughs> this is gonna sound really uh cheesy but i did give a rewatch a couple nights ago to double team the the classic nice. uh, the classic uh, film with uh, uh, Jean Claude Van Damme and Dennis Rodman. Interestingly, in the final act of Double Team, the the big bad guy who's played by Mickey Rourke um, kidnaps uh, Van Damme's baby, forcing Van Damme to uh, to team up with uh, with Dennis Rodman to to go and get him. Similar to this particular film, so maybe we could say, "Hey, that sounds like a puzzle piece." Yeah, maybe we could do that as well. But um, I will say about Double Team, <laughs> as stupid as it is, kind of like this movie. Every time I watch it, I I have a ton of fun with it because it is just so colorful and goofy, and I, I can't help but smile every time I watch that that ridiculous movie. So amazing, amazing! Yeah, I might have to revisit that. I haven't seen it since it came out, but uh, tell people where they can find you and your podcast. Yeah, thanks again, man. Um, this was a lot of fun. Um, yeah. So my name is Sean. Obviously, uh, the podcast is I Must Break This Podcast, which takes a uh, a look at the extensive filmography of Mr. Dolph Lundgren. We are currently caught up with all of his cinematic efforts. He does have one that is wait awaiting release that comes out next month called Wanted Man, which he also wrote and directed. So getting very very excited for that one. So uh, so stay nice. tuned. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's very exciting. That's really cool. But uh, yeah, thank you again so much for uh, for joining me on the show, and I look forward to getting you back again sometime. All right, take care, man. All right, so major thanks to David Rosen for his time and once again letting me guest on his show. Uh, you can see Aquaman, which is most likely maybe still in theaters, but will also most likely be on HBO Max here soon as of this recording. Um, you can also find that conversation as well as all of his many film conversations on his respective podcast, Piecing It Together. So please be sure to check that out. Uh, next up is our coverage of Showdown at the Grand which was released back in November of last year by Shout Studios. In this mix of action, comedy, and parody, Terrence Howard plays George Fuller, the proprietor of the Warner Grand, a movie theater that's still steeped in the traditions of the bygone era. Yet when some greedy land developers won't take no for an answer and begin using violent tactics to secure the rights to his livelihood, Fuller enlists the help of aging action star Claude Luke Halliday to ensure that the Warner Grand sticks around for at least one more showing. Here at the Warner Grand, we operate 365 days a year. We got a little something for everybody. 
Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome the man who saved the world thrice, killed Dracula twice, only got his heart broke one time. Claude Luke Holiday. <laughs> Our company like to offer you a very generous amount for this place. Some folks, they'll rob you with a six-shooter, and others with a fouling pair. It's time you either play ball or stay out of my way. He said you were coming back for Mr. Hollywood. You got real combat training, right? You'll be fine. Stay away from my friends. My theater. And my neighborhood. Extreme prejudice. Want the water, Grant? Come and get it. Wait, wait, I'm not ready. Returning to the show to help me chat this one is my good buddy Chris Prentice. Chris and I go way back, and he's been regularly guesting on the show since its inception almost seven years ago. It's always great to have Chris on. He's always willing to uh, discuss many of these films, especially the ones that uh, maybe are not so great, but that doesn't stop us from having uh, fun conversations. So with that out of the way, here is our discussion on Showdown at the Grand. All right, so we're here to discuss one of Dolph's more recent efforts, the tribute to Grindhouse Cinema, Showdown at the Grand. Uh, joining me to discuss this one today is my good buddy, uh, Chris Prentice. Chris, thanks for coming back, man. Hey, Sean, how you doing? How, I'm glad to be here. It's a, it's, it's a pleasure to be back on your show. Well, yeah, man. I mean, shoot. I mean, I, I should probably let the listeners know. I mean, you and I, we've been we've been pretty tight. We've been pretty close for what over twenty years now. I want to say, yeah, something like it's that. Been, it yeah. has been a very very long time and a a a, a, a treasure twenty years. I would say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you've been with me since the uh, since the the show's inception. I guess since the very first episode, and here we are, kind of winding to. I don't want to say an end, but you know, we're getting caught up with um, all of uh, Mr. Lundgren's efforts and this particular film. Um, I mean, th- th- this, this is an interesting one. Okay. So we can just say uh, this was released back in uh, November of this past year, courtesy of shout studios. I remember when it was in production, it, I don't, I'm sure you remember too. They released that photo of, uh, of Dolph and he was wearing that, bizarre wig and those sunglasses and you're kind of thinking what in the hell is this project like what is this and then 
when they announced that uh, he was going to be in a supporting role and Terrence Howard was going to be the lead, it was, I, I don't want to say that I got excited, but it was interesting. I mean, Terrence Howard's, he's a, he's a, he's a fine actor, I will say. And so knowing that he was kind of going to be in the lead of this kind of bizarre Quentin Tarantino inspired uh, grindhouse type film was, I guess, a little promising, right? Yeah, I, I do remember seeing that kind of that first photo of Lundgren and, and how he looked in this movie. And it, it was not a good first impression. Um, it was kind of like, oh, God, what is he doing now? I mean, this is just this this don't this don't look too good. Um, but, yeah, I think, you know, hearing that Terrence Howard was going to be the star and that it wasn't just something being thrown together by like, you know, hack producers and a hack director um, that, it, you know, that it, that it seemed to be like an independent film in more of the traditional spirit of independent film and not an independent film in the tradition of like, you know, the kind of stuff that Bruce Willis used to make. So uh, as learning a little more about it, it sounded like it had at least a little more potential to, to, to not just be garbage. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, we can just say right now, this film was uh, written and directed by a gentleman by the name of uh, Michael Oblowitz. And I mean, it's, it's very clear. <laughs> we can just say right now, it's very clear that this dude is a huge fan of Quentin Tarantino. Um, he was clearly inspired by the style of uh, Quentin Tarantino. I mean, everything about this film it might as well be a Quentin Tarantino um, uh, a movie. You know, it's funny. You and I kind of kicked around for years doing a, a podcast um, called The Tarantino Effect that looked at all of the films that were directly inspired by the Quentin Tarantino style, or, I, or better yet, by the style of Pulp Fiction. And, I mean, this film would certainly fall within that wheelhouse tenfold. Yeah, definitely. It, it borrows a bit from uh, from Tarantino. Um, you know, what was actually kind of funny is in the credits for this movie, uh, there's like a little section where, uh, you know, the filmmaker, uh, the director kind of lists his his uh, influences. He just kind of, it's just a section where he lists a bunch of directors that I guess that he likes and who, you know, influenced this movie. And he mentions Tarantino. He mentions Michael Mann. And, but w one thing that's odd is that he also lists um, the name Pune, which, you know, I assume to mean Albert Pune, but it's misspelled. It's, it's, it's spelled in the credits P U Y N instead of P-Y-U-N. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you can definitely see that this guy has, has been influenced by some of these sort of low-budget directors that kind of, uh, you know, made their names in the 80s and 90s. And, and, and I think that that's, uh, that's to this movie's credit, for sure. Yeah, most definitely. And, you know, I mean, and the other thing I will say about this film that's really kind of cool is that at this point in, in Mr. Lundgren's career, I mean... Van Damme, um, his his competitor, we can say, has been doing this for years where Van Damme was uh, taking on roles that were kind of playing upon his image, right? Or yeah. Taking, oh, on yeah. roles, taking on roles that were uh, poking fun at the type of um, characters he's played before. And so it only makes sense that Dolph, for this particular film, 
take on a uh, a similar role. I mean, we can just say right now, um, Dolph plays the character uh, Claude Luke Halliday, who is an aging action star whose best days are behind him, and so we get plenty of uh, plenty of scenes that kind of show his uh, his 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 B movies from the past. I guess we can say, um, and so it's. I, I, and I will say, I mean. There's some things about this film that I liked, some other things maybe that I didn't like so much. But what I did appreciate was that, yeah, we have Dolph, who is now at this stage, taking on a role where he's poking fun at his image. He's playing with his image, doing exactly what Van Damme has been doing. And um, I I think it works on that level. Yeah, no, I I would agree with that. It's, uh, you know, he's Dolph has done a little bit of this kind of you know, sending up his image, you know, he did the, that episode of it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Right. Um, you know, he's done his fair share of commercials where he's kind of spoofing himself. Um, but, but I think what I liked about him in this movie is that, yeah, it, it is kind of, you know, poking fun at, at action stars and kind of, you know, what they, what they might be in reality, but it's not like the, it's not really the obvious jokes, um, it's, it, you know, it's like his character is, is a little bit off and it, but it's not like, you know, he's this guy who's, you know, desperate really to, to become a star again, or, you know, that he's, he's, he's doing whatever he can to track down another, another film role. He's just, he's a little bit off and, but it's like in, in, in kind of a slightly different way. And it's so I, I appreciated that it's, it's not the obvious joke when it comes to his character in this movie. And see, and I think that's where you and I may slightly differ a bit. And, and that's totally cool. I mean, but that was my big issue with this film. I, and I'll, I'll just say it right now, actually, is that this film, it really doesn't know what it wants to be. Okay. It doesn't know. I mean, there's a little bit of comedy in there. There's a little bit of action in there. There's a little bit of, uh, you know, like I said, that kind of that grindhouse cinema, um, you know, feel and everything, but it doesn't fully lean into one particular genre or one particular side. So in the end, what we're watching is, is a film that kind of, it doesn't know what it really wants to be. And that, that was my big complaint with Lundgren's character with Lundgren's role is, I feel like he would have, I, I wish he would have gone just a little bit bigger with this character. I mean, he's a guy, he's proven that he can do comedy. He's proven that he can do action. He can, he's proven that he can do drama. Mm-hmm. And this character that he's playing is a little bit of all three, but he never really commits to one particular area. So his character that you're watching in the end, you really don't know what's up with him. You see, you see I, I actually think that's a positive. You know, Interesting. I, I, okay. Yeah, I, I kind of liked that. I kind of liked that it, it just it wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be, um, and it it wasn't just kind of the easy joke about the aging action star who's you know just past his glory days trying to trying to to. I mean, it it it, it sort of goes there uh, towards the end of the movie, but not fully. So I don't know the fact that he's he's kind of awkward in this movie and that he's, you know, like that, the scene where he's, you know, first introduced by Terrence Howard and to the crowd. And he just doesn't really know what he's supposed to be doing. Like, I liked that. I just thought that, that was just kind of different and it, it, it wasn't what I was expecting. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I liked him here. 
and uh, it's it's to his credit, and I think you know to the filmmaker's credit that it's just it's not the obvious jokes. It's not okay, yeah, he's you know he's speaking with a Russian accent, and you know he's doing a, a variation on "I must break you" and blah blah blah. And it's kind of the stuff that that we would we would expect. Um, so you know when. <laughs> Look, these past few years, we've seen Dolphin in, in a lot of movies that, that aren't so great. And so the fact that he, he kind of is in this one where, yeah, the movie doesn't 100% nail what it's trying to do. But you can tell when you're watching it that, that it is being made by people who who really want to make movies. And, and sometimes I don't get that sense in the movies that he does. Like, I don't know what the people who are actually making the movies seem to want or what they're really into, but they, but here I, I can at least tell that, yes, this is, these are filmmakers who, who really, really love movies. They're trying to do a nice kind of love letter, not just to movies, but to kind of the old time classic movie theater. And, and that does come through in this film. Well, that's an excellent segue because that was going to be one of my biggest compliments about the film, actually, is that everybody in this particular film comes to play. I mean, yes. and that's very, very clear. Everybody here is is acting their ass off and really, really trying. I mean, the production values for this film, I didn't I don't know what the what the um actual final budget was for this particular film or how many shooting days it has. But I mean, you and I have been saying this for years though, man. I mean, this film looks like a real movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for, yeah. For, for a change. You know what I mean? Uh, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of sad that we're living in an era where that is a compliment, but it is. I mean, how, how often do we watch a movie on Netflix or do we watch something on Prime? And it just, it looks, it, it, it doesn't feel like you're watching a movie. You just kind of feel like you're watching a TV show that's a little bit longer than, uh, than a regular TV show. And, you know, this movie, for, for all of its faults, it, it's, it's a legitimate movie. I, I, mm -hmm. I sat down to watch it, and I felt like I saw a complete story from start to finish, and that 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 was my relationship with it and that's just fine there's nothing wrong with that of of course it it's it's not going to be something that maybe i cite years from now as one of my favorites from uh from 2023 mm. but you know if someone were to to ask me and say hey you know did you ever see this uh, sh you know showdown at, at the grand and i'd say yeah you know what that's pretty good it's 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 got a lot of heart and i appreciate that with so many watching so many movies where i feel like nobody cares from the actors the directors the writers the producers in this movie everyone seems to be trying their best and so i i'm going to give it credit for that yeah well said well said i mean we can probably just say i mean we probably should kind of get it out of the way but i mean the the basic conceit of this film is terrence howard plays the character um george fuller okay he's the proprietor of the warner grand and this is a movie theater that's that's really steeped in in the traditions of uh of this kind of bygone era of movie theater going right um yes. Mm -hmm. And and basically, okay. I mean, if we really break it down, the the conflict, if you will, is some uh, greedy land developers are coming in. They want to uh, they want to uh, buy the Warner Grand and uh, and demolish it and and you know 
secure that land. Um, George Fuller doesn't want to. So, of course, these land developers are resorting to dirty tactics to, you know, to... (laughs) To, right. to finally acquire yeah. it. And if we get to the big high concept gimmick of the film, it's that uh, uh, Terrence Howard, so this is the George Fuller character, he ends up teaming up with the action star that he idolizes to take on the uh, to, to, to take on these villains. I, I will say, I, I love that concept. I, I think it's a really, really fun concept. Um, th- that's, I guess, one of my minor quibbles with this film is... It happens a little bit. I don't know if you felt this way or not, but the whole team up aspect really doesn't happen until way too late into the film. And then once they do team up, spoiler, but um, Lundgren's uh, Halliday character, he gets killed a little bit too soon. So that team up element really doesn't uh, really doesn't run its course like I hoped it would have when I first heard the idea for this film. It it doesn't really lean into that as much as I thought it would either. Right. I mean that 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 aspect of the movie is is really just the the third act. Um, yeah. You know, for for the first the first two acts of the film, it's really just about you know about George and you know his struggles trying to keep this theater going. Um, you know, getting pressure from the, the the evil corporate lady who's, you know, trying to buy him out. So it's it's really just kind of a character study for the most part. And, you know, we we, we only really see Lundgren at least in the first two thirds of the movie in the, uh, the clips from the various movies that his character had appeared in. Um, that That's actually maybe my biggest gripe with the movie is that, I kind of wish that the the different clips for the movies were a little closer to the kind of movies that that Dolph actually had made but you mm-hmm. know it's all those all those clips they seem for the most part they seem more like movies from the 70s not really movies from the 90s you know you get Moses versus the nine, the Nazis uh that was one of them you know uh, Necropolis uh, most of the clips they seem to be movies that would have been done in the 70s i think the the one exception is that there was one movie that called cyber cartel uh where they have a a clip from and and that seemed like maybe something that would have been in the 90s but i yeah so that that's kind of my one gripe is at least in terms of those of those clips uh of uh, lundgren's character but yeah i i see what you're saying that that maybe it could have benefited from having um the, the team up part of the movie be a little bit bigger than it actually is but i just i just see it as really this movie is kind of a character piece about uh Terrence Howard's uh you know theater owner and so you know really the the point of the movie is less about the team up and more just about his struggles his life and and how he's uh trying to keep his theater afloat I mean, well, there's an awesome segue there, Chris, because, yeah, this film is a character study and you really wouldn't expect a a character study from this type of film um, in this day and age, I would think. You know what I mean? Oh, Um, for sure. But, um, yeah, I mean, we can just say right now, I think Terrence Howard, I mean, let's just say it. um, I think he's easily the best thing about this movie. I mean, he, man, when, when I said earlier that everybody came to play, I mean... Terrence Howard in this particular film, you can tell how invested he is, not just in this movie, but with this particular character. I almost kind of wonder if he's pulling from a personal place in in uh, uh, portraying this particular character. I mean, but 
let, let's just break it down real quick. I mean, I don't know if you, I'm sure you noticed this, but he's like, he's profusely sweating in many of his scenes. I mean, you yes. can just see the sweat that is coming off him and you really do. I mean, when I first heard that, that Dolph was going to be, um, uh, co-starring in this film with Terrence Howard. I'm thinking, well, I mean, say what you will about Terrence Howard. I know he kind of got the shaft from Marvel, but I mean, he's, I think he's a fine actor. I mean, and you, you buy him. That That's the great thing about this film is that you buy him as this theater owner who's desperately trying to preserve the glory days of cinema. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I, obviously the reason that, that we're talking right now is we're both, you know, big, Dolph fans, but but yeah, Terrence Howard is is the is really the the biggest asset for this movie. Um, he's the real deal. Oh, for sure. I, I think. I mean, he's a good actor. He's been a good actor for a very long time. Um, you know, he's all he's. You know, I, I think he's kind of been around since uh, like the early nineties. I think the first thing I remember seeing him in was a. Uh, he had a really good scene in Dead Presidents where uh, he kind of gets into it with uh, with the Renz Tate in that movie in, in a pool hall. And that, that's kind of the first uh, movie I can remember seeing him in. And I mean, yeah, he's a, he's a really good actor. I know he was a producer on this movie. So I think he, he had a, you know, a little more at stake than, than if he was just an actor on it. Um, he, you know, he did a song for the, the film's credits. Um, I mean, he, he just, he, he's very believable. I mean, you know, it's like, I, I've never met, anyone who owns a small movie theater, but in watching this movie, I can kind of watch it and say, yeah, I guess that's a probably about what they would be if, uh, if, if there was a guy who, who was owning this kind of a theater. But yeah, I think Howard, Howard does a really good job. I mean, the guy's a, is, is, he's a quality actor. You know, he's kind of from, from what I've read, he's, he's, he's a bit of a, a aloof and kind of, kind of out there in, in some aspects of, of life. But, um, in terms of just a presence on screen, he's, he's really good. Well, and can, can I say something real quick that is probably going to piss off many. And uh, I think this is blasphemy to say, but um, I think he was a better uh, roadie than Don Cheadle in, uh, in the Iron Man movie. I'm just going to yeah, say I, it. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't think that's blasphemy. I mean, like, well, so this might be blasphemy, but like, okay. Yeah. Don Cheadle, you know, he was great. Back in the day, in Devil in a Blue Dress, he was great in Boogie Nights. But you know, we're talking about a very, 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 very long time ago with um, with with some of those roles. I, he's just kind of like a guy now. He's just a guy who is in movies, and you know, it's like I can't really. I, I mean, I'm probably the wrong guy to ask because I'm just not as into these Marvel movies as as a lot of people, but. When I think about him in these movies, there isn't really like, oh, that's the defining moment for Rhodes that Don Cheadle captured. And, you know, I mean, a little bit of that is because there's just so many characters in these movies that, you know, people are going to get kind of lost. But I don't know. I, I, I man, I, I think Terrence Howard is, is, a, is, is just a much better performer overall than Cheadle. Well, here's, here's, I mean, I'll, I'll just say it. Okay. Here is, in my opinion, one of the, the true um, call signs of why I think Terrence Howard was so much better in that role. Because if you remember in that 2008, the original movie, now granted, I mean, and, 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 and don't worry, I don't plan on talking Marvel and all that stuff for very long, but I mean, if you can go back that far now, granted, the first Iron Man movie, that was the film that kicked it, that, that started the entire thing that, that, pretty much 
how do we how do I want to say this? That was the film that pretty much started what we have today in yes. terms of uh, in terms of cinema. But sure. there was that scene in at the near the end, okay, of the first Iron Man movie, where and I'm sure you know the moment, but where Terrence Howard looks at the uh, the prototype suit. Okay, as uh, as Tony Stark, as the Robert Downey Jr. is going into battle, he looks at that suit and he says, "Next time, baby." Okay, yeah. and yeah. I remember seeing that in the theater. Okay, and even when I've seen it in subsequent viewings, that is a line, that is a scene that people still remember. Can you yeah. really remember anything that Don Cheadle has done in the five or six movies? <laughs> that he's no, in, in the no. movies. You know, like I said, it's like Don Cheadle is is in no way a bad actor, but I he's just a guy. He's a guy who is in movies. That's that's who he is. Yeah. I he doesn't he just doesn't to me he doesn't uh, doesn't get the the needle moving. And uh, whereas I think you know Terrence Howard, he's he's got kind of that that just a little bit of a spark to him and a little bit of an edge that, that I appreciate. And, you know, I mean, he's one of the few actors that I can think of that has, you know, dared to cross Marvel. And, um, you know, it, it, it might've hurt him a little bit at a time, but I think he, you know, he, he did eventually get that show empire. That was a big hit. And so, you know, he's, he's at least still around, you know, it's, 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 you know, there aren't many. There aren't many of these guys that have really taken Marvel to task and and kind of, uh, uh, you know, at least as publicly as Terrence Howard did. You know, I guess there's Ed Norton. He's he's another one, and uh, and you know, we really don't hear a whole heck of a lot from Ed Norton that much anymore these days. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I I really think that he he added a lot to that Rhodes character that. You know, once it went to to Don Cheadle, it, it was kind of a lost cause, and I don't think anybody really has like, oh, this is my favorite, you know, War Machine moment from uh, from these movies because it's just, you know, it's just he was an afterthought at that point. Well, and let's be honest, okay, I mean, we're starting to see it now as of this recording, but um, <clears throat> the bubble of the superhero movies is finally starting to burst the bottom is slowly starting to kind of drop out. And so I think a lot of, uh, a lot of the, um, the companies that are in charge of things are kind of doing some uh, retconning and looking at, uh, at where things have gone wrong. And so I wouldn't be surprised if we see some more think pieces and we hear some actors coming out and kind of talking about the, uh, the monster that, uh, <laughs> that, that, that Disney and Marvel have been. Yeah, it's you know definitely with the with what we saw from uh, the Marvels, you know that that's that had to have been a wake up call for for yeah. uh, for Disney and for Marvel because you know the the time where they could just kind of throw anything out there, you know, and say hey Marvel presents uh, you know whatever you know it's like even even you know, the Eternals didn't do so well, but it did not flop as bad as the Marvels. And so I, I, I think there is definitely going to be changes uh, in the, in the movies that are coming up. I mean, I think the next one that, that Marvel has is Deadpool three. They're going to have Hugh Jackman back as Wolverine. I think that's something that's at least going to get people excited when, when that's ready to come out, you know, whether it's a good movie, who, who knows? Um, but at least, you know, that's kind of a hook, that uh, can can kind of get get people excited to say, oh yeah, remember remember when remember Hugh Jackman he was Wolverine. Oh, let's go see him in the in the the X Force outfit. That'll be something. Um, so, but yeah, it's it's 
it has been a, a real steep decline in recent years, and not just for Marvel, but for DC. And you know, as as we know now, Dolph is kind of part of history, as as he is in kind of the the last of the 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 Snyder. I guess I don't even want to use the term Snyderverse, but he's at least a part of the the last uh, Snyderverse DC movie, and I, I don't think we're going to see Dolph in any any future uh, uh, DC films going forward. Yeah, well, going back to Terrence Howard real quick, I mean, yep. l- let's just say, I mean, I, I don't know where you felt. I mean, actually, I, I imagine you probably have some things to say about this. Um, but his wardrobe in this film, okay, yeah. so this is. Mm-hmm. This is one of those things where you have to wonder, okay, was this Terrence Howard's doing or was it uh, the production? I mean, but he, his character, his fuller character has a wild wardrobe in this film. He wears cowboy hats and leather dusters. I mean, again, it's clear Terrence Howard, he clearly knows the type of film that he's in and he's really relishing it, but he's playing it so serious, which is a, uh, which is one of the positives to the film. Considering yeah. how silly, considering how silly he looks. Oh, absolutely, and and I think his look and his wardrobe, you know, that's again when you're dealing with movies that are you know made on a on a shoestring budget, you know, like this one, you need to find ways to to set your character apart, and an easy way to do that is is with your costumes and with your wardrobe, and yeah, Howard, he he definitely pulls that off here. Um, you know, de- definitely a very distinctive look, and uh, again, I, I think it's it's a good match for his character, and you know, he's he's really the heart and soul of the movie. Like I said, I, I like what Dolph does in it. You know, there's some there's some good, some decent laughs at what he's doing in, in his role, and he's perfectly fine in in a supporting role here. But but Terrence Howard is is why this movie works for me. And like I said, it, it's a character piece, and he's uh you know he, he's he's just very believable. He's he's very believable, very charming, and you know his his passion for this movie theater comes through 100%. And I think that's the key to making the movie work because if you don't buy in his character and if you if you're not rooting for him to save his theater, then there's really no point to even watch it. So the fact that he pulls that off so well, you have a a, a decent movie. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, if we if we look at the film, I mean, yeah, like we said, the the high concept gimmick of the film is theater owner teams up with an action star to fend off these villains. Um, we can just say that George Fuller, his character is a huge fan of uh, of Dolph's Halliday character. Um, the theater lobby in the film is a shrine, literally, to Halliday's films, including many props from all of these films. One of them is like this sword axe thing yeah, that you yeah. just as soon as they show it you know that uh that Dolph's oh, yeah. character is going to be picking it up and uh wrecking some havoc with it i mean and and that's the thing i mean i, I that that you and i may be slightly at opposite ends on which is totally fine i mean but yeah again we get tons of these scenes of these false movies starring the holiday character um clearly meant to be silly they are lots of fun though i mean i me personally i wished that again, we got just a little bit more of Halliday's backstory, and there were some so many questions that I that I was left wondering. Like, for example, okay, why is the Halliday character so depressed and burnt out, and why is he accepting this last minute Q and A gig at the at the Warner Grand? And the film, unfortunately, it just kind of leaves that 
open for you to kind of make assumptions with, but they right. never e- either, either they didn't answer it on purpose or maybe so there were some things cut with this particular film, because that's the other thing too, that I will say, I mean, is this is a clean 90 minute film that doesn't overstay its welcome, which yeah. I will say is a perk, but also a bit of a detriment because you can almost tell that Michael Oblowitz, um, he had a bigger vision with this film, but he wasn't able to flesh it out fully. Uh, yeah, that's, that's probably true. Um, I, I, I'm sure that, that may have happened, but, but man, you know, talk about Marvel movies. If, if I can get movies that are just 90 minutes and they can tell a compelling enough story in that 90 minutes, I, that's, that's a relief these days. So I'm not, I'm not going to knock the movie for that. And yeah, it's true. You know, there's, there are some questions that you could have about Dolph's character and okay, why is he so, so down in the dumps and what is going on with him? But I feel like the fact that the movie doesn't a hundred percent spell that out, it's not really a negative. It kind of, you know, yeah, it's, you're kind of open to, to your own interpretation as to what the hell happened to this guy from the time that he was a successful action movie star to now where he can, he can barely stay coherent in in front of a crowd. Uh, So it's, it's yeah, it, it's a question worth asking, but I don't think the movie necessarily had to fill us in on all that. Um, I think we kind of get it that you know he's he's obviously not quite as stable a person as he might have been uh, thirty years ago. Um, he's he's kind of been invited for this uh, one night of, of maybe reclaiming his glory and 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 sh- having a crowd laud him and and show their appreciation. And he just doesn't really know how to handle that anymore. And that's that's just where he is in life and how he got to that point in life. We don't really know. And and I don't really call that a, a negative. Yeah. I mean, well, you you said it earlier. I mean, when you and I were talking about this um, offline uh, about a week or two ago. But what's what's so interesting is um, and I wouldn't have picked this up if you hadn't mentioned it. But this film is basically Fright Night. Okay. Yeah. yeah <laughs> if you remember the, the film Fright Night, we have the main character um, who teams up with a, uh, what is he? He teams up with a TV show host who fights yeah, vampires, he, right? He was kind of like the, kind of like, you know, every city kind of had that sort of creature feature show back in like the 70s and 80s that would show, you know, the, the late, late night horror movies. And so, yeah, that's who the, the, the protagonist, the guy from Herman's Head, uh, was the protagonist. Uh, he, that's who he, he teams up with to kind of battle vampires, and it's it's yeah, it, the kind of the basic story of that is essentially the story here. Only uh, this this one showdown at the Grand has the whole movie theater aspect to it, and, and that's that's a big enough difference to where it does set it apart. But yeah, it's just kind of that basic story of taking somebody from a world of films and then having them um, try to, to, to do that in real life. Um, yeah. There's a lot of similarities between this movie and, and Fright Night. So I'm actually going to go uh, one further and say that it actually reminded me of the Chuck Norris, Jonathan Brandis classic. Oh, sidekicks. Boy. Well, I mean, yes. <laughs> Yes. Well, look, any any time that we can bring up the work, uh, the works of Joe Piscopo, 
on, on a podcast is, uh, I mean, how can we not uh, talk about sidekicks and uh, and the 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 well, uh, I'll just go ahead and say it, the the, the tragedy that that struck uh, Jonathan Brandis in later years. Uh, yeah, I don't know how have we recovered as as a people. Well, I mean, and also we, we got to talk about the villains in this film. I mean, that's the other thing too about this film is I think the villains are okay. I mean, they're not, mm-hmm. they're not spectacular. I mean, let's just say yeah. that they're, they're not ones that you remember um, long after viewing, but they're okay. I mean, I guess the head villain is uh, um, this uh, uh, character. She's played by Amanda Rigetti. Okay. Yeah. She is the, she's the head of this development firm who are hassling George Fuller. I think she's actually quite good. Who are also pretty good are her disciples um, mm-hmm. played by uh, John Sklarloff and uh, Mike Ferguson. I yeah. mean, they, I think they add the appropriate amount of uh, menace to the, uh, to the proceedings and they work, you know, I will say though, I mean, I had an idea right before we, right before we sat down to record, but I had an idea for where, this film zigged when I feel like it should have zagged. I mean, and by that, I mean, okay, these, these villains in this film, they are land developers. Okay. Who want the land? I get that. Okay. But my problem with that is we've seen that before in, in a number of films. And I feel like if the Terrence Howard character um, is a, uh, how do I say this? If the Terrence Howard character is a vessel for director Michael, Michael Oblowitz's um, appreciation and passion for cinema, then don't you think it would have made sense and it would have been pretty cool if instead of being land developers, they were the um, proprietors of like a, um, of a streaming service that is putting theaters out of business. If they had leaned into that, then man, talk about, talk about, you know, having a passion yeah. for cinema. That would have been, I think, much better. Yeah, I mean that that's, you know, if you're we're talking about how to make it even more relevant to to what's going on today, that that would have been the uh the the way to go and you know, they could have there could have been a whole angle of, you know, the streaming service you know wanting to take over the theater and and just just as a as a means to to show their films and make them eligible for awards because that's kind Bingo. of the thing. Yeah, that's Cuz that's where we're thing. heading. Let's be honest. Well, that's yeah, where we're heading. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean we're 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 there to some degrees all, all to some degree already. But sure, I think that that would have been a really good idea. Um yeah, now now that I think about it, that that would have been a, a really good idea actually. Um but I do like like you were mentioning, I do think the people that they got to play these bad guys do a good job. I thought Amanda Rigetti, I think the only other thing I'd ever seen her in was a uh, was the the last Friday the Thirteenth? She was like the main girl in uh you know the 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 two thousand nine Friday the Thirteenth, and I th- I thought she was good here. She's just kind of an icy person, and and you know it's it's not really a role that has a whole lot of nuance to it. But I thought she did a perfectly fine job, and uh, but yeah, I think that 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 actually would have been a good idea if uh if they had been representing you know some sort of a streaming service, which is you know trying to to basically uh, zap all of society of their uh, of their small beloved hometown movie theaters. Well, I mean I, I don't know if there's much much more uh, else we can really say about this particular film. I mean because again, it's it's Dolph showing up in a, a bit supporting role which I mean is is I mean at this point it's proven. I mean, look, I, and I've said this on the show numerous times, but 
whether or not, regardless if he's the main character or if he's a supporting character. I mean, he has that presence about him that when he is on screen, I mean, it's, it's man. He, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, he delivers, he, he, he um, completely absorbs your attention and everything like that. But um, yeah, I mean, there's not much more to say about this particular film. Uh, I'll, I'll go to you real quick. Is there anything that you would like to say or add regarding showdown at the grand? Well, I, I would just say, and, and look, you, because of this show, you know, you watch all of Dolph's movies, so so you see them all. I watch most, but uh, there's there certainly are some, especially some recent ones where I just kind of look at them like the you know like the best man, you know, it's like I look at that and I just uh, no thank you, I just don't have any 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 real reason to watch that, but. You know, th- this is one that I'm glad I watched. I'm glad that he did this. I-, I I think this is a this is a nice little supporting role for him and kind of a small independent movie. And um, I I have no problems with his with his work here. Uh, like I said, there's the movie ain't perfect. It it has its flaws, but for the most part, it it, it does deliver what it sets out to do. And like we said earlier, it's it's mostly thanks to Terrence Howard. I think he is excellent. Uh, you know this. This is this might be the best work I've seen from him since uh, he played the basketball coach in that one part of movie forty three. Oh yeah, <laughs> I, I I completely forgot about that one. I mean, I know it gets I know it gets a lot of um a lot of heat today, and uh, people don't like really mentioning it. But um, you know, say what you will about Crash and its um its maudlin politics and everything like that. But I think I think he's fantastic in the movie Crash as well. You know what I mean? As the well, uh, yeah. as the TV, what is he? He's a TV producer and a writer who's uh, who kind of <laughs> who kind of trades words with Tony Danza. Yeah, that's cool. that's well, that's but really he, that, that, that's yeah. honestly all I kind of remember from Crash is Tony Danza. I, the rest <laughs> of it's kind of kind of left my head. But whenever anyone says the, about the, the movie Crash, I just think, oh yeah, that's the movie Tony Danza was in. Yeah, uh, that's that's about all I remember. Um, but yeah, it's like um, I'll give you another forgotten Terrence Howard movie. Do you remember the movie Pride? Yes, yes, uh, about swimming. Yes, yes. I, yeah, I, I remember actually Bill Burr's bit about that particular film where he was like, "Wow, this is the point we're going where we've gotten to with sports movies where we're, we're talking about a high school swim team." Okay, <laughs> well, look, it's you know, it's 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 Terrence Howard and it's uh, Bernie Mac. Bernie Mac is like the was kind of the the curmudgeon janitor that ends up helping Terrence Howard to coach the uh, swim team, but but the film's secret weapon had to be Tom Arnold as the the evil the evil white man swim coach. I thought he yeah. was uh he he was kind of the uh, the, the the secret ingredient because he's he's a real nobody really likes Tom Arnold and uh, and he he kind of plays to that to to great effect in in Pride. So uh, yeah, a very derivative kind of you know school sports movie, but um there aren't that many swimming movies around. So, you know, let's, let's, let's give it up for pride a little bit. That was a, uh, you know, at least it tried to be a, a little bit different and not just be another football or basketball film. But you know what? Terrence Howard was excellent in it. You no, know what he I mean? Always, I mean yeah, he was, he's, he's good. He, he, he delivers. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, with regard to my recommend, I mean, you know what? I'm, I'm right there with you to an extent. I mean, look, <laughs> call me surprised. I mean, I'll just, I'll just, you know, completely put that on my sleeve. When I first heard about this film, when I first saw the, uh, the first image of Dolph, I'm thinking, 
oh boy, like here, oh, yeah. here's another here's another easy paycheck. Okay, oh, there yeah. we go. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I was very surprised. I mean, I will say for a film of this nature, um, it, it's it's really pretty cool to see the production values put to great use. Like I said earlier, I do wish that Dolph got a little bit bigger with his role. I wish that he really committed to, to one particular side, whether it be the drama, the action or the comedy, but okay. But at the end of the day, I think what we have is a decently crafted movie. And as a, de- uh, as a debut film from Michael Oblowitz, I think it is a fantastic rookie showcase. I think we're going to be seeing more from this guy. I, I didn't, I haven't heard of him. I didn't see, you know what I mean? Like he, he kind of came out of the, he was under my radar. Like I had no idea who this dude was, but man, as a, as a, uh, as a rookie, you know, kind of look at me type film. I think it's a, uh, it's, it's, it does a wonderful job. Oh, I, I would certainly uh, watch another movie from him. And, you know, maybe he, he, maybe he struck up a rapport with Dolph and, you know, Dolph will be the, the lead in his next movie. So that's, that's how it works with these, with these kind of productions. You know, you, you, you take a small part or a supporting role, and then, the, you know, the next movie that comes up, it could be a, a, a Dolph Lundgren vehicle, and it'll, it'll be one that we, we talk about for, for, for ages and ages. So um, I, I wish him good luck, and, and he, he did a very nice job here, as did Terrence Howard. As did Dolph Lundgren. I, I I give credit to everybody. I even like the I like the John Savage. You know he he was in this as like the guy that owns the pawn shop, and you know he's an actor that's been around a long long time. And I I, I always like him. And uh, yeah, I, you know, it's a small part here, but but I like seeing John Savage. He's a good actor. Yeah, yeah. We haven't really talked about him, but yeah, he shows up in this film. What's interesting is you could pretty much lift that character out of the film, probably. And- the, the yeah. film is going to play just fine, but even he shows up and, uh, and, and delivers, you know what I mean? So yeah, like I, he's, I, more. I, 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 you know, he's, he's, he's one of those actors that's been around a very, very long time. You know, probably the deer hunter might be kind of his biggest movie. Um, if anybody's listening, they want to see a, a very good old John Savage movie, uh, check out the onion field. That's a, a great movie uh, that that he did. Uh, was a, a really good uh, bad guy performance from James Woods. So that'll be my, my recommendation for this episode is uh, the Onion Field. Well, there you go. I was going to ask if you had anything to plug or anything to give a shout out to or anything to recommend. But there you go. Thank you. The I'm Onion plugging field. the I'm plugging the Onion Field. There you go. I hope I hope maybe if we get a little bump to their their uh, streaming rental sales. Um, you know, that, that's, that, that'll make, that, that'll make this whole podcast appearance worth it. Right on. Well, Chris, this has been a ton of fun. Uh, thank you very, very much. And, uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. All right, man. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. And, uh, glad, glad you had me on for a, for a good movie. All right. So again, that was our coverage of showdown at the grand, which is available on video on demand providers. Major thanks to Chris Prentice for coming through once again and chatting about another under-the-radar Dolph Lundgren film. So that's it for today and this episode. Uh, Please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever else you go to subscribe. We always appreciate the reviews. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast. (laughs) 